Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We're good. All right, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today is episode 61, and we're going to be interviewing Leslie C., how are you this morning, Leslie? Oh, I'm doing great here in sunny California. Sunny Looking California. out my office window. <laughs> I'm at, right now, I moved to a town called Roseville, which is pretty close to Sacramento. Most people, more people are familiar with Sacramento, but I yeah. lived predominantly uh, the past 40 some years in the what's considered the east bay and i just moved from san francisco where i lived for six years to roseville um and before that it was out in the east bay which means it could be walnut creek san ramon i had a home in concord so that's where since i moved from the midwest which is where i grew up in columbus ohio um and i moved Oh, is it? I, you know, I, I think it was Akron, that. Ohio, I'm where Dr. Bob lived. But a lot of people don't know, oh. not to get too much into the history of it. Um, Bill mm-hmm. W. lived in Brooklyn. So it was also kind of like a New York thing. You know, that's my, my territory. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, there's a real connection. When I went to Ohio State for, for a while, a lot of my friends were East Coast, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, especially a lot of New Jersey. Yeah, Ohio that's where State. I'm from. I'm yes, about I'm in New Jersey, about 45 minutes from New York City. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's that's nice. Get, yeah, I used to work there, so I used to go out to the city. And so I had fun during the day. I was the hustle and bustle. And then at night, I got to come home to quiet Jersey. So that wasn't a bad deal. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, Yeah, because I still go back to San Francisco. But that is two hours away. But I have my children there. So I make sure I go back and forth. Gotcha. So let's talk about you. Tell us a little bit about growing up. Um, I grew up in a probably middle-class household. My dad was an optometrist. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, I am the eldest of three kids. Um, I have a, my brother is the baby, and then I have a sister. And everything I'm very blessed. Uh, Both my parents were um, happy, healthy, and for most of the time until, unfortunately, we have a lot of cancer in our family, but I, I had, me too. And I have to say though, the family was stable. You know, my parents didn't drink, do drugs. They, I was beaten. Um, I was never physically assaulted, you know, by my my dad or my brother, or um, or mother, because that can also happen. I and the turmoil began for me um, when I was nine. I started getting sick. I started not 
feeling very well. My stomach was getting upset, kind of abdominal issues. And they diagnosed me at the age of nine saying I had a duodenal ulcer. And in those days, they believed ulcer was stress, but I wasn't. I mean, I did not. I was a really happy young kid, you know, doing my ballet lessons, going to school, having my friends swimming in the summer. And several years later began um, really feeling awful and having a lot of lethargy, joint pain, stomach pain. And most of what my mom got from the doctors was, well, you know, little girls are complainers. You know, they always have tummy aches. There's nothing the matter with her. And at the age of 12, I began hemorrhaging internally. <laughs> wow. So, so they can't say I imagined that. And what ended up was at 12 years old, I was in exploratory surgery and was diagnosed. At that time, they called it terminal ileitis and you can only imagine those words to my parents terminal my they thought I was going to die but what that really meant was in the end of the small bowel there was disease and today that disease is known as Crohn's disease and so the next two years I missed going to school and had to have a private tutor and had to eat. In those days, they knew even less about nutrition and was told to eat baby food and no live foods. Baby so, food, huh? yeah. And you can only imagine when your body is trying to grow and regenerate and be nourished and all you have is jarred food for the most part or bread, things that cause turn to sugar in your body and create inflammation. Um, it really took a while for my body to figure out how do I get well being bombarded with something that's not very healthy. Because it, it's, it's obvious if you have a disease of your entire digestive system, what you eat matters. It matters. It's the first thing that matters. And second is how you handle what the world gives you, stress, and how you interpret conversations. So it, it took me a while um, to get back into school. And at the age of 16, I was 64 pounds, and I was about 4'11". So you very can, tiny. Yeah, it's really tiny. And I, I, I didn't have boobs. <laughs> I didn't have any of the things other girls did because I was suffering from malnutrition for over two years. And I thought, well, is me. I will just, nobody's ever going to want me. Nobody's, I'm never going to get married and have a family because even in those days, look still really mattered. And what I looked like was a little kid, you know, compared to all my girlfriends. Um, and fortunately, at the age of 17, all of a sudden, I started getting taller, I got boobs, <laughs> you know, I was saved in my mind. And 
everything in my hair started coming back and my skin started improving. There's so many different things that you don't realize when you have a disease in the gut. And I don't want to get technical because there's all kinds of nerve endings that correlate with how you think in your brain. And now they actually call the intestine the second brain. I've heard that. I watched the documentary on that. Yeah, I've heard about that. It it really, it's really interesting when, when I come out of remission, I get loopy and my, my memory gets even worse than it normally is. And it's because it causes all kinds of issues with kind of this loopy, loopy brain fatigue and joint pain when you have inflammation in your gut. But what that did to me having this disease and part of the way I was treated by my male doctors began sending some, all these messages that got buried about my value and my worth and, and how I process information and that, gee, I knew I was sick, but they're telling me I could possibly be. So my belief in my own reality already started becoming distorted at a very young age, even though I had no awareness at all about any of that. And as time progressed, probably every five to seven years, I would go in and out of remission. This disease, when you're out of remission, and I've had eight surgeries, the uh, normal, I hate using that word, the average person has 25 feet of small bowel. Most of my disease was in the small bowel, but also the colon. Um, And you have about five to six feet of colon. I now have only four feet of small bowel. I'm on minimum amount of small intestine to be alive. And I do great because I do work really hard, just like I did in my sobriety to stay healthy. And you can see me. I happen to be 73 years old. You don't look it. And it's only because I've really taken good care of myself to try to be as healthy as I possibly can with this disease. And and in the mental part of it, the mindset part of it came with how I needed and to heal myself, what tools I needed to go into recovery. Because what happens with this disease, it's the pain is you can it's like 20 on a scale of one to 10 and in the hospital I had to go into the hospital a lot and they began giving me IV Demerol every three hours 24 hours around the clock and I was usually in the hospital uh 10 days to two weeks what was the what was the first stage they gave you painkillers? They probably probably started me on life painkillers when I was a kid. Um, but the heavier duty opiates, like uh, they started me with Tylenol and codeine number fours, and 
what happened was, is that going into the hospital so frequently for the pain, my body actually got addicted before my mindset did. And they didn't actually stop giving me the IV drugs. I, I got a last injection before I went home. So every time I went home, I went through withdrawal. And I'm a wife and I'm a mother during this period of time. So it was really, I started developing a huge closet of guilt because I felt very defective with this You said disease. your body first, you said your body first got this um, addicted before your brain. What right. age was that? What age was that? I, I was probably 20, in my early 30s. Okay. Yeah. I would be in my early 30s at that so point. So you were taking them, because you said you were prescribed as a little child, so you were taking them for quite a long time, it sounds like, before you got Well, it wasn't consistent, no, because okay. when I when I would go into remission, then I didn't need anything. I was fine. Okay. All right. It was only when the disease was being really exacerbated, um, where I, I just couldn't handle the pain that mm -hmm. it was so bad it was double over food poisoning kind of pain wow and and if there's women out there who've had children who are listening to your podcast it's like giving birth pain but there's no pretty baby at the end it is that bad wow i can't imagine that i mean obviously i don't know what birth pain feels like but uh, <laughs> everyone sees the woman screaming <clears throat> yes because it hurts it can really hurt so it was that was the the beginning of it. And, be, and I would even go back and say, you know, something's not right. I'm feeling, you know, shaky in the jitters after I get back from the hospital from, you know, the Demerol. And they said, well, it's not possible for you to get addicted that quickly. That doesn't happen. You're not getting, you know, it was once again being told what I felt wasn't real. And what happened was, is also I had a doctor at the time who gave me a hundred Tylenol encoding at a time as frequently as I asked for them. Now imagine that because what began to happen was the physical pain became emotional. And I started with my favorite word in those days, which I shudder at the time that that's how I labeled myself was defective. And so I started using those drugs a lot. I would take my, I would get up, take my kids to school, come home and swallow about 15 plus Tylenol and coating number fours. And there were days I laid naked on the bathroom floor crying for my mother who had died at the age of 35 from breast cancer. And then all of a sudden the drugs would begin to wear off. I knew I had to go pick my girls up at school and be sober and off I went. Sounds like you were very depressed. I was extremely depressed and it turned out, their dad turned out to not be a very nice guy. Um, I ended up, living I actually I was married for 18 years 
to my girl's father and there was a lot of emotional abuse and then physical abuse began whereas choked what yes. age were you when you first had children because you said you uh, got 20, addicted in, yeah. in your early 20s. It, I got addicted in my 30s. Oh, no, no, yeah, apologies. You started. That's okay. Different. That's okay. In my 30s. Um, yeah. And I had my first kid. I was probably 29. Okay. That's when I had my first kid. And so what started happening is living with a person on a daily basis who kind of implicated you were stupid and you weren't always well enough to take care of your children the the way you wanted to or needed to. And it's not like I was always sick because I was not. It took, it was maybe every five to seven years I would come out of remission and then it would be really screwed up. But in between when the addiction, the addiction began when the hospital visits became really frequent and that was during my kids grade school years when that happened and recognizing that I because I felt so defective I wasn't a good mom I felt like a horrible wife and I really didn't like how I felt as a person I truly believed that suicide was my option um, and that my girls were young enough, I'm sure they would be happy with another mother who was healthy and happy. Um, and I took every pill I had in the house. And fortunately for me, most of them were benign and I hadn't had a full prescription of the opiates. And all I did was for the first time was sleep. And I did tell my husband at the time I did that, and he called my GI doc who said what what did she take and those she will be okay she will just sleep and I am I allowed to use profanity at all sure (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) okay so the next morning I wake up and I go oh fuck I can't even kill myself Mm. and I thought okay it's time to put your big girl panties on and what is it you need to do to fix this? And that's when my work began. And it, I went back to school. I, I actually became trained as a hypnotherapist and decided to end my marriage. And at the same time, ending my marriage and becoming a hypnotherapist was an absolute godsend. Because we had to learn all those techniques on each other. So it was an absolute savings grace for me. And I also became a massage therapist to help people who had the same disease that I had or any autoimmune diseases, which cause pain. And I worked as a massage therapist in that realm, not necessarily just, I didn't want to do just feel good massage. I wanted to work with people with the dual thing of of hypnotherapy along with touch, doing both for healing. And I've never um, actually, that's interesting. I've never heard of anything like that where a massage therapist for sick people, I've never thought of that or heard of it. 
Well, because typically you, you're supposed to keep your mouth shut as a massage therapist when you have a client on the table so they can relax, you know, so they can maybe do the breathing they need to do if there's areas that have tension and the therapist pushes it out for you or gets. But I was trained also to help people breathe differently. And what's become very popular because the medical profession or people who, you know, might do tapping, for instance, emotional freedom tapping, I do that also, started learning how to calm and regulate the nervous system better. And touch with permission, different touch with permission. And you don't even have to actually touch if you're doing like Reiki healing touch along with the hypnotherapy, you're, you're at a distance with your clients. But what you are doing, what you learn in training, this was another thing that was very cool when I was training in Reiki, is they, they set up this little clay ball and then they put a pit in it and then they put a little square paper disc balancing on top of the edge of the pen. And our training is that we have to, with our hands on the side of it, begin to release the energy from our body into the paper and make it spin. Hmm. That I was able to do it, not as well as some people could do it, um, but that energy that comes out of us Sometimes that people sense about us without even opening your mouth up is is what helps heal people in those fields. And that there are even times if I'm just working with a client with hypnotherapy and the form that I like best is what people know as guided meditation. There are words so that we track what your history is. You know, what you have resonated for so long about what you call yourself and what you think of yourself. And you can almost visualize if you were just to close your mind, your eyes, that when you hear a voice that's softer and calming, and I don't know if you can hear the music I have in the background at all. No, I can't hear it. <laughs> it's it's kind of all this calming and I'm, I'm looking at a Buddha and there's like smoke coming out of my screen and, and all that. But if, if you can imagine when you can visualize an incident and in that visualization, you also smell what was going on, bringing back the aromas that were in the room. And what did you hear? And was there anything that you tasted? And it's those kinds of techniques for me that, that I learned in my training that I do with clients that can bring you back to moments when you've been slipping and you're out of, you're in your addiction to remembering the parts of you that functioned well and were happy because you can recall it and then bring it into your body and feel it. 
And so the past probably 20 plus years, almost 30, that, that's what I've been doing uh, for nice. others. But I also have to do it for myself because I found that if I didn't eat a particular diet that I eat that's more anti-inflammatory, and if I didn't practice breathing, especially when I get stressed or irritated, because I do, I mean, I live in a world with people, you know, and I have a partner and I have grandchildren and I have children and, you know, there's always miscommunication and maybe you didn't get this job you wanted or this client you wanted or whatever, that if I did not practice that input that help me begin to feel that I had worth and value and to take that term I had for myself of defective and put it not in a drawer because you can pull things out from a drawer, but in the fireplace. So it was obliterated. I still, to this day, I have to pause and, and do all this week, this work. I mean, being an addict sucks. <laughs> it yeah, really, absolutely. Yeah. on so many levels, you know, not just because you've, there are many of us who messed up our lives, weren't the kind of parent, we, mom, we wanted to be, we had a failed marriage. Maybe we made really bad choices when we were dating, we got hurt. The multiple of things that can happen when you're high in your addiction. You know, it takes a lot of work to move those out and really understand that who you were before you did that, you can be that and even better and that we're all amazing, even though we've had this movie we've been in that's been devastating and has devastated many of our lives, those of us who have not gone into recovery or have repeatedly tried to, to stay in recovery. It takes, the work is forever. So when you got addicted in your early thirties, how, how originally, what kind of person did it make? Cause some people say, oh, I was a better mother. Or like they, they name all these different things. Like, you know, I was able to go calmly with my children when they were doing, you know, bad things. What kind of person no, were you? So I know you mentioned crying um, in the bathroom. So obviously at a certain point, it turned into a depression. But was it always right. like that? No, it wasn't always that. There were times that it, the, my drug of choice gave me a lot of energy. What was that? What was your drug of choice? Well, well. In the end, my drug of choice was uh, Norco. And uh, I, there was the is one that, an that opiate? yes, it is. It's a very strong opiate. I was on Oxy in one period of this time. And it's actually, um, if you want to hear that story, um, this was before I had one slip in all the years of trying to be, um, to stay in recovery. And I had gotten ill 
in my 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 oh my first grandchild is now 21 and that year that my daughter was pregnant with him um I came out of remission again and started doing the drugs and behaving the same way taking them when I didn't need it um and taking a bunch at one time or mixing it at times with alcohol um and what happened was my grandson when he was born he was ill and had to go into the hospital and sometimes you don't realize you're in a blackout no because <laughs> you just don't know that's you're blacked out and you do not know what your behavior really is and I didn't realize because I had taken taken the opiates and um, my sister was in town visiting uh, to meet my grandson and we went to the hospital and we were eating in the room and I ended up with my face and my food passed out so why I'm there with my grandson being sick my sister's taking me down to the ER for them to dose me with charcoal and um which I thought was chocolate milk I thought it was delicious that's how high I was and the ER doc when he found out and that was when I was on the oxy that it was going to be a long road and not an easy one to get off that And so it was from what my family did after that incident was they did um, an intervention. And I was told that if I didn't get sober, I would not be with my grandchild. And the next day I was in detox and recovery. And that was 21 years ago. Um. You say you were in detox recovery. Did you go to a facility? I did. And I was there for over a week. So the medical assist, they helped you to make sure you were okay along the way. Like you didn't have seizures or I can't even imagine detoxing by myself at home. I was really sick and vomited and diarrhea and shakes and you know, uncontrollable muscle twitching of your legs. You know, I could barely get up out of the bed to even go to throw up as as everything was leaving my system. And it, it took me about four days to finally start eating and for for the shakes to, to stop and to be able to be able to sleep. And then I could really start participating in the group functions and dealing with what brought me to my knees again and how uh, how was I going to move forward and make it stick because I thought I got rid of that word and you know burned it up but there was still too much residue that I still felt you know that area of I'm a piece of shit still was alive somewhere and got triggered again when I became ill and in pain but um the last 21 years has been really cleaning up everything from top to bottom from how can I physically start getting well 
and see if the possibilities of getting off the medications they had put me on, which was a chemotherapy drug to keep the Crohn's in remission. And how do I really not feel like a burden? Mostly to my family. And, and I'm really fortunate. I in particular have my oldest daughter is an amazing human being. And I don't, she, I think she was born an old soul because it seems like from the time she came into the space, she just knew. She knew how to protect herself and she knew how to communicate with people in a loving, kind, and open way, even though there was the chaos of the abuse in, with her parents and her mom was an addict. So no, I did not think I was a great mother. I, I don't really believe there was anything about the drugs that was good or that it helped change me. I think if I felt that it did, I would feel like I was delusional. You know, if it made me a better writer or more creative or, you know, a, a better coach for my clients, that that to me in the mindset that I have now would be delusional. It didn't make me better anything at all. It made it worse. And now that I have a healthy diet, I don't need an opiate to trigger energy. There are all kinds of foods and supplements and things like that that I take that keep me healthy and energetic so I can participate fully, you know, with my grandchildren who are now the two older ones. There's a 21 and 18, and then I have a 12-year-old grandchild. And she was able to see me as I bloomed and to be healthy all the way around. You know, and I, I never was a person that asked, why me? You know, it just, I always believed it just, is it just it, it just happens and sometimes you're blessed that it doesn't happen to you and sometimes uh, uh oh guess what you know you're the one that needs these lessons and there may be a reason why I had to learn these lessons to pass out pass on pass on separately and um to pass on to other people so they can begin to get into a space the same as me where life is good and that really anything that you can think of that you want for yourself and dream about you actually can have it you can't just wish it you have to take the steps in between to get there but I went from thinking there was very little possible to anything that's possible so you said you kind of shied away from the 12 step programs. What did you actually do as far as, you know, just like a progression of what did you, you know, how did you get sober? Well, what I you said you went to doing, detox for a week. What, what happened after the detox? Well, then I did the 30 day program uh, outpatient program okay. where where I came back in group and I did some outside meetings probably for a year after 
that's what I did. And I started doing some individual therapy with a psychologist and um, getting back into physical exercise because that's always been something throughout most of my life that's really important is I'm not an athlete. I danced as a kid. Um, you know, I like yoga. I like lifting weights, going to the gym, you know, doing a class, that kind of, that kind of thing. So I started getting back into exercise. And after the year of realizing that I wasn't tweaking certain things in me, they weren't the vows that needed to be shut off that that still echoed that I wasn't worthy that I wasn't I didn't feel I was working on any of that by going to a meeting that it had to be an inner structure that I needed to change about me and that meant I really needed to walk through some things that could be really painful and make me feel pretty crappy about myself. Because even coming out of rehab, the whip that I had of guilt went for blocks and blocks and blocks over feeling like such a fuck up with my kids and such a bad mother. Um, so then I got more heavily into the one-on-one -on -one therapy. And I've been really blessed because I had therapists who suggested other things and things to read. And, and I, so I started gearing myself towards books that encourage, that energize you, kind of the, the Tony Robbins energy. And, and I'm a super fan of his. I mean, I really am. Because the more you can put into your brain and your environment where it is sunny, and it's not cloudy, and it's not dark, and feed yourself like Jack Canfield, who is also an amazing coach that, that talks about all these positive things that we are, and what we can do, and, and or like a system, like I, he suggested putting, um, he wrote out a check for how much he wanted to earn his first year, and he woke up in the morning looking at it and went to bed looking at it and and what i'm alluding to is our thought process it's like all the steps that i began taking had to do with how i thought about myself and and how i took in information from the people around me because i tend tended and still do but not as much so it doesn't get me in trouble, is to personalize somebody's behavior. Is that if, let's take you, if you were having a bad day and you were fast to react in a grumpy way to something and maybe I did whatever and you snapped at me, I would, oh, what did I do? You know, what did I do to deserve that kind of anger from you? And, and it had nothing to do with me. It was about you. It was about your day. So that's been probably one of the most difficult things for me to cut back on 
so I don't personalize everything that happens around me because then that can trigger the self-doubt, self lack of self-worth button. Because I was never, I still am not able to get rid of it. There are still moments that come up in a new situation where I may feel some fears about who I am and what I'm capable of doing. And then I remember and I see fully in that vision inside my head what I did, what would happen to me if I ever picked up another pill again. If I ever combine using a pill and a drink. So what you asked me was, it was all the individual techniques. So I did do acupuncture. I had massage on myself. I began really practicing a lot with myself, my hypnotherapy skill in looking at the different areas where I didn't feel strong enough or, well, I'm not happy about this and I'm feeling sad about that and ask, becoming more curious, like why? Why am I feeling that way? And then sitting with myself and making sure my breath was working because for many years, I was also a breath holder. And what we've discovered is that holding of your breath, especially if you have all this anxiety, it actually makes it worse and gets the heart beating words more so. And if you can calm down and there's different kinds of breathing that you can do when you're really at a heightened stress level, then your thinking clears up. So I really paid a lot of attention to doing a lot of guided imagery with myself I started learning a bit meditation alone with breathing and that was more difficult for me because even though it's not possible to have your mind be blank at least not at my level of learning and meditation that keeping it really calm just focusing on breathing was difficult for me. And that's why I did a lot more guided meditation or which is really the same as hypnotherapy, frankly. They aren't much different at all because what you're doing in hypnotherapy is I'm placing you in a state that hopefully you're enjoying this conversation. So you're wide awake. <laughs> but if I happen to be boring you and your mind drifts off somewhere else, you're in a different state of mind. And it's in that state where you can help put in changes and start really changing habits and behavior. And what I learned is because it's not doing it once or twice that I learned with studying in my own practice, it takes a minimum of three months of repeating an action before it actually begins to change and you develop new habits. And for, yeah, and for many of us, that's really difficult to be that persistent. But what happened for me 
and, and starting to be really happy and bombard myself with the Tony Robbins state of mind and energy and the eating of food actually helped create that feeling of happiness and took away depression and, and fatigue is that when you, you really begin to learn and accept it without feeling angry, that it's okay to do this every day. Because most of us wouldn't think of not brushing our teeth in the morning and night. And so it's just the learning of all these different techniques from breathing, meditation, exercise, really having a healthy diet, being silly with my grandchildren, walking and doing things that maybe I was a little afraid of. And I don't mean jumping out of a plane with a parachute on because I won't do that. But it's just the things that I allowed myself to do so I could become silly and feel happy in every cell in my body again. And I just knew that that I needed to do the every one of those things. Eat right, exercise, guided imagery, therapy, um, and the material around me that, that I was reading and listening to music, that's the other thing. You know, music became my church. And it's and most of us realize that when you hear a particular song, it can either evoke something sad or something happy. It can actually, if you're feeling fatigued, it can change your mood really easy because I use a lot of music and movement therapy in my practice. And, and that's something that, that is a, such an amazing tool if you feel yourself really struggling and being sad. Go on, play some really happy songs and get up and just dance around the room. <laughs> so it, it's, it's the practice of all those things that have continued and then led to what I do professionally because I saw wow, I'm only going on 21 years in recovery. That's a long time. And I see, and especially COVID brought so many people to their knees again. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you one last question. Sure. What is some advice you would give to people that are listening or watching? You can't do this by yourself. You really, I don't believe in my opinion, you can't sustain sobriety by yourself. I also believe that there are many facets and many tools that we need to stay in sobriety. And I, I haven't found that one is enough. You know, I think meetings are amazing to connect with people that have, have experienced the same types of trauma with, with their own uh, um, addiction as you have. But then you, then I believe you also need to add to that, to, to look at feeling amazing about yourself and capable about yourself and make sure you, you eat right 
and eating sugars and lots of starches. I mean, that's a whole show in itself, you know, talking about nutrition. I would say you can have the list of the things you want to accomplish and then pick one thing. Where do you want to start? And start with that step. And as each step becomes easier, then add the next thing. You know, maybe it's just working, it's going to meetings. And then it's incorporating a coach or a therapist. And then it's changing, really looking at how you eat. Are you healthy? Are you, and then it's looking at exercise. It's like, give yourself a break because there's a lot of areas that I believe you need to incorporate in order to stay in truly long-term recovery. And, and that definition for me is well over 10 years to start. Long-term for me begins with my clients at 10 years. That's some great advice. And, and thank great you. Advice. I appreciate the opportunity. I I do get carried away in Not at all. Not at all. This, so. I say the good interviews are the ones where I don't talk too much because you know you got a good story to tell. But, well, it, it it breaks my heart. <clears throat> so many people in a community I never thought I wanted to belong to still suffer so much. Yeah, and all we can do is things like this to hopefully try and spread the message and relate to someone. Right. Yeah, but that's all we have for today. Or oh, did you have any last thing you wanted to add in? No, other than thank you. I appreciate no, this. Yeah. No problem. It was great having you as a guest. And for everyone that's listening or watching, go below, give us a like and subscribe to us. Also check out our Facebook group. You go under the events tab. We do Zoom meetings daily. It'll give you the Zoom ID and password to get in. And check us out on Twitter and Instagram and we're all over the place as far as social media goes. So that's all we have for today and until next time.